This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, and we will be looking at the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. The seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And they gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable." And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. 
The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would see your goodness and care and provision for your people, that though they may face times of sorrow and hardship, you deliver them and you exalt them. And ultimately, for those whose hope is in you, you will raise them up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time as we looked at Genesis, it looked like God's favor had maybe shown on Joseph in a particular way. Though Joseph had served at that point a combined 11 years in slavery and in prison, it looked like he was going to get a break. Two advisors, two servants of Pharaoh, were imprisoned under his care. And they had dreams of which God gave him interpretation. And to the butler who was going back into the service of Pharaoh, Joseph requested that he mention him to Pharaoh, his unjust suffering, so that he might have a hearing and be freed from prison. Well, the butler left the prison and proceeded to forget for two more years. God's timing is not always our timing. When we have problems, we want them to go away now or fast or soon. What about when they don't? Maybe they don't go away right away. Maybe they don't go away for years. Maybe they don't go away at all in this life. In these times, in these moments, we can be inclined in our limited and fallen and sinful nature to question God. Many have used tragedy and hardship as a springboard into apostasy and deconstruction, leaving the faith behind because they think things like, a good God would never let something like this happen. A part of this is a failure in teaching doctrine. Much of American Christianity is something that I like to call arbitrarily positive. It's focused on the happy and the uplifting and the encouraging and the positive without always having sufficient grounds for doing so. The truth of Scripture is that while God ultimately works all things for His glory and the good of His people, He makes all things beautiful in His time, that doesn't mean that we are free from hardship. People will take texts like those I just mentioned from Romans 8 and Ecclesiastes 3 and from them expect and demand all things be good now and God make everything beautiful now. And if that doesn't happen, then we can be thrown into crisis. And yet, if we look at the full witness of Scripture, there is often also Scripture talking about suffering, lamenting, the sorrows and hardships of life. But not only that they are hard, but also that how God can use them to shape us and use them for our good. How would we be doing? after 13 years of slavery and imprisonment that we did nothing to cause or deserve. 13 years of separation from home and family and country with no plausible end in sight. 
Maybe some of you know something like that, but in general, we probably have it pretty good. <coughs> but finally, after these 13 years, God will deliver Joseph from out of his affliction and suffering in such a way as to not only be delivered himself, but in a way to be exalted. He will become something like a king and provide deliverance for all of God's people. So we'll look at Joseph's exaltation tonight in three points. First, there's an intervention in verses 1 through 16. God brings about events in just such a way that Joseph will finally get his audience before Pharaoh. But for much more than just a pardon and release. And then second, we see interpretation in verses 17 through 36. Pharaoh has had dreams and Joseph, by God's power, will interpret them for him. And then third, an installation in verses 37 through 57. Joseph will no longer be a slave or a prisoner, but a ruler of Egypt. Intervention, interpretation, installation, those are our points for this evening. So first we look at intervention in verses 1 through 16. So again, we're picking up the scene two full years after what we saw last week. But just as the butler and baker did before, now it is Pharaoh, the king, who has a dream. In this dream, he is standing by the river. Now the river in Egypt is not just any old river. It is one particular river. It is the Nile. Egypt lived and died by the Nile River. It flows from the mountains of Central Africa and carves its way through the Sahara Desert all the way down to its delta at the Mediterranean in Egypt. If it were not for the Nile, Egypt would be barren and desolate like much of the rest of North Africa. And so Egypt, again, it lived and died by the Nile. If the Nile was too high, Egypt would flood. If the Nile was too low, Egypt starved and suffered and died. Nowadays, the Nile is regulated by various dams and reservoirs, but back then it was not nearly so much. So anything in Egypt having to do with the Nile was going to be very important. It was going to get attention, and especially when it found the eyes and ears of the king. So in this dream of Pharaoh's, seven cows came up out of the river, and they were the finest of fine cows. Those of you who work with and around cattle probably have some picture in your mind when you think of the best of the best cattle, the kind that you definitely want to have if you can get them. So it is cows like these that come up out of the river and they eat. But then seven other cows come up out of the river, and they are not nearly so attractive. They're ugly, they're skinny, they're gaunt. They're the kind that if you had, you might not be inclined to keep them around. But then comes the particularly strange part. These seven weak and skinny and ugly cows eat the seven fat cows. In his later description, Pharaoh comments that they look just as bad after eating as when they started. And how bad was it, Pharaoh said, when he told the dream to Joseph they were the worst-looking cows he had ever seen. Now, that's the first dream. And it's a bit strange. It could even be a bit scary. And so Pharaoh awakes. 
But eventually he goes back to sleep, and then he has a second dream. Now previously he had a dream of animals, but this time he has a dream concerning crops. He sees heads of grain, seven of them growing on a single stalk. They're really good. They're the kind you want to have. They're the ones that get all the right rain and sun, and they're ready to be harvested. But then just as before, he sees seven really bad heads of grain. The text says they were blighted or scorched by the east wind. The hot desert wind of Egypt would be very bad for crops. They did not grow properly. But then as with the cows, the seven ugly and inferior heads of grain eat the good ones and yet get no better. And then Pharaoh wakes. So having both of these dreams with these clear parallel symbolism in the same night is clearly too much to be a coincidence. And the content is rather disturbing. Why are all these bad things devouring all of the good things? And so Pharaoh calls for help. He first turns to all the magicians and wise men of Egypt, but none of them were able to provide an interpretation. But then after all of this, who should reappear but our old friend, the chief butler? After these two years of forgetfulness, this episode has suddenly jarred his memory. Of course, it was not mere human forgetfulness and neglect. God has orchestrated things this way for a reason. He is sovereign even over people's forgetfulness. Some of us can take comfort in that. That that is how far his providence reaches. But now the butler remembers that prison servant who once upon a time interpreted both good and bad dreams for him and the now deceased chief baker. He also realizes his error and mistake. He comes to Pharaoh in an apologetic tone, saying in verse 9, I remember my faults this day. And he goes on to recount to Pharaoh the episode where Pharaoh was angry with him and the baker and imprisoned them. Not Probably not the kind of thing he wants to bring up again, but it's important to set the scene. So they went to prison, and each of them had their dreams. And there was this young Hebrew man there who somehow, someway, without missing a beat, was able to interpret these dreams the moment he heard them. And then things happened exactly as he said. The butler was restored, and the baker was hanged. What had been forgotten these two years was suddenly very useful information. Well, Pharaoh, having tried everything to sort out what was going on with these dreams, was willing to give this young Hebrew a shot. And so he sends to the prison for Joseph. Now imagine what kind of scene this would have been. Joseph was there in the prison going about his duties as one in prison who supervised prisoners. And then suddenly the king's servants show up looking for him and say the king wants to talk to him. I used to work for a state government agency in Wyoming, and we had a lot of different things we would do, but once in a while we'd get a call from the governor's office or the office of a senator or a congressman, and suddenly we had to drop everything and do whatever that office asked, whatever that office asked because they were more important than us and they had the ability to boss us around. 
How much more would this be true in an absolute monarchy like Egypt, as it was with the pharaohs? The king wants to talk to somebody. He's going to talk to that person as soon as possible. Of course, Joseph had been in this prison for years, so he wasn't exactly presentable. It seems they had to give him a shave and a change of clothes so that he'd be ready to go in before the king. The servants provide all of that, and then Joseph is off to Pharaoh. So he comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh speaks to him. He says, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. All true enough. But something vitally important in this, in light of everything I said at the beginning, is Joseph's first words to Pharaoh. How is Joseph's faith, how is his trust in the Lord after 13 years of sorrow and hardship, including the last two of just being forgotten by the butler? Well, Joseph immediately says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. After everything that has happened, Joseph's trust remained firmly in God. He knew what is always true, but what we are often inclined to forget. We can't do anything or have anything or be anything on our own power. All that we are, all that we have is a gift from God's hand. And not only that, but remember, this is Egypt. So Joseph is saying all of this in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians. He is asserting his faith in his God. Now, Egyptians are not worshipers of Yahweh. They are pagans. They worshiped a pantheon of pagan gods. In fact, the Egyptian pharaohs themselves were often regarded as gods, as deities. So if Joseph came into the court of Pharaoh and started talking about his God in a pagan land, he might be opening himself up to religious persecution. But he doesn't care. He knows his God is true and faithful, even despite all the difficulty and suffering he has faced, and he is not the least bit interested in hiding it. Now we can contrast this with many Christians in the public square in our day who seem to be far too interested in saving face before a godless and pagan world. So they never want to explicitly talk about God or his truth or the exclusivity of him as God in public. I've mentioned before a particular two kingdoms doctrine, the one I was taught in school that teaches that it is wrong to bring God's word into public, that people can just govern themselves by natural law and should be free to do so. And so they say we shouldn't tell the government or society what God says they should do. Just appeal to reason and common sense, and God will govern them through that. That's not what Joseph does. He knows who his God is, and that his God alone is the true God, and righteous, and powerful, and is the Lord and sovereign of heaven and earth. And he doesn't care what might happen to him for saying so. So God has finally brought Joseph to an audience with the king. But what happens next? This brings us to our second point, interpretation, in verses 17 through 36. So Pharaoh proceeds to tell Joseph the dreams in verses 17 through 24, and the details are 
essentially the same as before. There is the added detail that the thin cows were the worst he had ever seen and they didn't look any better after eating the good cows, but otherwise it's essentially the dream as it was told at the beginning of the chapter. So Joseph begins his interpretation in verse 25. Just as with his interpretation of the baker and butler's dreams, there is no hesitation or doubt. God immediately gives Joseph what he is to say, and he's faithful to do it. First, Joseph confirms that the two dreams are one. They go together. They're describing the same thing. And what they are describing is this. The seven good cows and the seven good heads of grain each represent seven years, the same seven years. And then the thin cows and the bad heads represent another seven years of famine. The first seven years will be years of great plenty, great abundance, good crops, good animals. And then the second will be years of famine, so severe that the years of plenty will be forgotten. The repetition of the dreams was to show the certainty of them. Pharaoh sees this twice because it's a sign from God, and God wants him to know for sure that it is a sign from God and that it is about to happen. But then Joseph, talking to Pharaoh, goes a step further. God has not only provided to Joseph the interpretation of the dreams and what they mean, but what course of action that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are to take. Pharaoh is to take a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt, basically a second in command, a prime minister, to carry out the task of managing the coming events. And then the officers would be appointed also to enforce the plan around the country. All of this to ensure that Egypt had enough to survive the coming famine. Joseph tells Pharaoh that they should collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven good years. There will basically be taxation of the plenty against the harder years to come. And that produce is to be stored in the cities so that it will be available when the famine comes. It's all very specific, right down to matters of personnel and policy given to Pharaoh through Joseph by the hand of the Lord. And Joseph has no qualms or hesitations, he a Hebrew prison slave, telling the king his business. Why? Because Joseph is answering to a higher authority. His faith and trust are in the Lord, and in the word of the Lord that has come to him. Not in princes or men, or foreign things or foreign gods. So how does Pharaoh receive this message? Well, after the intervention and interpretation, we come to the installation in verses 37 through 57. We see that the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. They had been struggling with this dream and its meaning, and then suddenly this Hebrew prisoner shows up and can clearly and concisely spell it all out for them. Not only what it means, but what they should do about it. But there is a question. Who should be the man in charge of all of this? This probably would be a desirable position, one with much responsibility, but one that would also bring much power and influence and possibly even wealth. But Pharaoh knows right away who it should be. 
even as a pagan king of a pagan land, he is forced to recognize the propriety and truthfulness of Joseph's God and the words that he has spoken through Joseph. And so Pharaoh immediately gives that position to Joseph. He is now this prime minister, this steward no longer of Potiphar's house or of a prison, but now the house of Pharaoh and the very kingdom of Egypt. Pharaoh tells Joseph that all the people of Egypt will be ruled according to his word. Only in matters of the throne will Pharaoh be greater. This means that Pharaoh is still king. He'll still have ultimate authority over Joseph. But Joseph is basically now in charge of running the day-to-day -day affairs of the entire country. He has been set over all of Egypt. Now talk about a quick rise. Yesterday, he was a prisoner. Now he's second to only the king himself. And to make this official, Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring. Now we talked about signets back when we looked at the episode of Judah and Tamar. Signets were for signatures. They basically validated legal documents and things of the sort. So to have a signet was to be able to act on authority of and in the name of the person who owned it. Pharaoh giving Joseph his signet meant that he was basically delegating his own kingly authority to Joseph. Joseph had the right and the power to act as Pharaoh. Now, with his new job came some new perks. He got a gold chain. He got to ride in Pharaoh's second chariot. So Pharaoh went places for public appearances and Joseph got to be in the next most prominent place. Joseph got to... Joseph got to be reverenced and respected by the people. They would bow to Joseph and regard him just as they would the king. Pharaoh gave Joseph essentially absolute authority in the kingdom. It says that no one could even lift their foot without Joseph's approval. In other words, everyone had to do what Joseph said. Joseph was also given a new Egyptian name, the Zaphnath Pania. It's not exactly known what this name means. It's a language that is unclear. But Joseph is also given this Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, as a wife. Now, this is a little bit strange as Joseph's wife is the daughter of a pagan priest. For one, this comes at the king's decree as the king's provision, so... There's probably not a ton of say that Joseph had in the matter, and there weren't exactly any non-pagan wives available in Egypt. Perhaps this one was chosen because she was willing to come and serve and worship Joseph's God. We don't know that for sure. But it is here that we get the official time marker. After being kidnapped and sold at 17, at 30, Joseph is now the ruler of Egypt. And Joseph, over the next seven years, does exactly as God had given for him to do, collecting grain from the years of plenty. Lots of it, so much, so much of it that they had to stop counting. There was too much they couldn't even keep track of it all. But it was enough to weather the hard years to come, to provide not only for Egypt, but for the surrounding nations. We also see that Joseph is blessed with two sons. The first is Manasseh. As we've often seen, these names that are given to children have meanings. So Manasseh means, For God has made me forget all my toil 
and all my father's house. It is a name that indicates that Joseph knows, he acknowledges that God has delivered him from his afflictions, both those before and those during his time in Egypt. And the name of the second is similar, Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph here, in this name, is acknowledging that though he has come through much hardship and sorrow and difficulty, God has been faithful to him and helped him. And then starting in verse 53, the seven years of plenty end and the seven years of famine come. And it's not just to Egypt, it hits everywhere. All the other countries. And it's going to affect Canaan, as we will see later. But God prospers Joseph, and suddenly Egypt under Joseph's care is the only place around that has food. And they have enough food that they're able to sell it, not only to their own people, but to the surrounding nations. So what we have seen in our text tonight is God's continuing faithfulness and help to Joseph in his land of affliction. God's hand of providence has been in all things, even in Joseph's hardships and sufferings, to prepare him for this exaltation, for he is now a ruler. Now this should instruct us as we face the hardships and trials of this life, and all that we can Look at our sorrow and suffering and recognize that even though it's difficult, God is ultimately in control and he can even use the hardships for our, for our good and his glory. Of course, as we have seen before with Joseph, he is not merely an example. He is that. He is a righteous and faithful man dealing with very difficult things. And in many ways, he shows us how we ought to do likewise, but Joseph is also a type of Christ. Joseph's righteous sufferings are a picture of Christ's righteous sufferings. Jesus never sinned, not even once, and yet he was hated and scorned, eventually persecuted and killed. Joseph never did anything to earn 13 years of slavery in prison. That was all the evil actions of evil people. But similarly, Joseph's exaltation is a picture of Christ's exaltation. Though Joseph was a prisoner, a slave, one good is dead, one good is not even a person, God raised him up so that he might reign, and so that by his reigning he might save the people of Israel from the famine. Jesus was dead. He was crucified. He was in that tomb three days, but then God raised him up. And Christ has ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns over all things. So Joseph provides for us a good example of perseverance through suffering and difficulty and of God's providence. But Joseph also points us to Christ whose suffering and glorification does something for us that Joseph's never could. Because we are all fallen and sinful. We come up short of God's glory, and left to ourselves, we deserve nothing but death and hell and condemnation. But 
Christ, by his perfect righteous suffering and death, has purchased life for us, a share in his own resurrection and glorification. Those who belong to Christ, those who trust in him alone for salvation, after all the struggles and troubles and afflictions of this life, even if they never get better or go away in this life, will live as he lives in heaven forever. That is the hope of the gospel. Joseph was a type and a shadow to point us to the reality that comes in Christ of salvation. So my hope and prayer tonight is that we may all have that hope of gospel glory as we face the sorrows of this life. We can be comforted in them. We can know that whatever this world does to us, whatever we may suffer in this life, even as undeserving of it as we are, God is with us and God is for us. And ultimately, God will take us to himself, will deliver us out of the sufferings of this present evil age because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your care for your people. Not only how you provide for them in earthly things and how your hand of providence is at work, even in trials and hardships, but most of all, how you have provided for us a way of salvation through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that all who are here tonight, if any do not believe, if any have not received and rested on Christ as he is offered in the gospel, that they would do so. I pray that we would all be comforted and assured by this gospel, so that even as this life throws difficulties and hardships at us, we can have the confidence that um, these sufferings are momentary and light because they prepare us for greater glory and for eternal life. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.